Salt, Sugar, Fat, How the Food Giants Hooked Us by Michael Moss, published in 2013. Every year, the average American eats 33 pounds of cheese and 70 pounds of sugar. Every day, we ingest 8,500 milligrams of salt, double the recommended amount, almost none of which comes from the shakers on our table. It comes from processed food, an industry that hauls in $1 trillion in annual sales. In Salt, Sugar, Fat, Moss shows us how we ended up here. Featuring examples from Kraft, Coca-Cola, Lunchables, Nestle, Oreos, and many more. He takes us into the labs where scientists calculate the bliss point of sugary beverages. Unearths marketing techniques taken straight from the tobacco company playbooks and talks to concerned insiders who make startling confessions. Just as millions of heavy users are addicted to salt, sugar and fat, so too are the companies that peddle them. You will never look at a nutritional label the same way again. The written summary can be found on our website, bestbookbits.com. So without further ado, I bring you the book summary of Salt, Sugar, Fat. The only way out of the fast food dilemma is to do it yourself. And only people who live a natural lifestyle and an intelligent minority who have the necessary financial means manage to do this. Junk food is very cheap, available almost everywhere, requires very little or no preparation, and is an essentially quick and easy option for meals. Most convenience products are also handy, quite tasty, cheap, and cool, sometimes even entertaining. And there are two additional reasons why many people can't give up convenience foods. They get hungry again very quickly, and fast food makes them very happy. Moss, other journalists, and a number of scientists have predicted that the future will bring catastrophic healthcare cost, and as long as these don't have a noticeable impact, no effective measures will be taken. Political involvement is to blame here. See the section, The Secret Meeting in 1999, which is a must-read if you want to understand this dilemma. For readers who are interested in learning more about the topic, I've included links to Wikipedia. There you will find lots of interesting, helpful information. Often the pages are only available in English, as pages in languages other than English are often created by individuals whose opinions are influenced by specific industries. Number 1. Summary Many people assume that the topic of food safety is well regulated by the government. This book provides strong examples that show how much control the food industry really has. As a result, there are many places where laws to protect consumers are lacking. The food industry has an increasing say here. The fact that the liberal idea that everybody is responsible for themselves is not true for a majority of the population can be seen in society itself. The book is a critical history of multinational food companies. This includes their makers, research, product development, production and marketing. And in telling this story, Moss often points to the dangers for the human population. Readers shouldn't expect a non-fiction book that works carefully with a purely factual common theme, but rather more of a novel. In this book, time, places and facts are all woven together, somewhat like a stew. Salt, Sugar and Fat is the best book that I have yet to read about the problems of the popular convenience foods, including pizza and industrial processed foods. For those who avoid these types of foods, this book will serve as a confirmation. Unfortunately, those who are affected usually don't read this type of book. But if so, they should expect a difficult struggle with their own emotional brain or rather limbic system and amygdala, emotional reactions. 
Most people unfortunately develop a sense of resignation before they would try to take their fate into their own hands. Moss offers an impressive explanation of how the brain responds to stimuli. Industrial foods are created to make the biggest profits possible and very skillfully make the use of the phenomenon of addiction. He describes studies with salt that show how programming errors are already possible in the mother's womb and in the first months after birth. But it is also possible for us to get out of this cycle. As the study described below shows, However, this takes three months and requires a lot of willpower. Those who have analyzed the numbers in the past several years and calculated for the future know what society is going to be faced with. The facts are now on the table. It isn't eating disorders that are the problem here, but rather the masses of people who have poor eating habits. Most people lack information, education, and financial resources. In February 2013, Principal Investigator Robert Moody published the following statement in the scientific journal The Lancet. Moody teaches at the University of Melbourne in Australia. Having hoped that multinational companies will freely choose to produce healthy products is like entrusting burglars to install door locks. Corrective laws and measures are lacking. Given the corruption in the food industry and politics, such laws are not yet possible. Personal suffering and healthcare cost will have to first increase much further. Number two, book review. Michael Moss begins his book with a description of the extraordinary secret meeting on April 8, 1999, where the most important top managers, CEOs of the food industry giants met. One of these 11 men supervised a total of 700,000 employees and annual sales of $280 billion. After the prologue, Moss uses the three book sections to explain the role of sugar, fat and salt and why, for example, the food industry has to use these and other additives in order to achieve the necessary shelf life and to capture market share. In certain sections, Moss describes the industry's actions in the areas of research, development, production, marketing and sales in detail. For this book, he spoke with numerous persons who are and were in positions of responsibility and with government and public officials. With in-depth insider knowledge, Moss was able to report on the dilemma that concerns us all. The secret meeting in 1999. James Birkin, who was at 55 at the time and a special advisor to the Pillsbury chief executive, organized this meeting. He suspected that the US government would intervene and do something about the ever-increasing problem over obesity in the population. He also feared that the government would blame the food industry for the growing healthcare crisis. At this meeting, there were no agenda items, notes or journalists. The CEO of each of the following eight companies took part. Nabesco, Kraft, General Mills, Procter & Gamble, Coca-Cola, Mars, Pillsbury and Nestle. As competitors, these food industry giants fought hard and still hard today on the market. That same year, General Mills acquired the major cereal producer, Kellogg. The CEO from the two most important suppliers were also present. These are Car Grill, United States, a family company with $134 billion in annual sales that is responsible for purchase, processing, and sales of grains and grain products, and Tate and Lyle, UK. John Caddy from the National Food Processors Association, NFPA, arrived only in time to take part in the dinner together. Note the NFPA is now called the Food Products Association, 
FBA. Tate and Lyle's Sucralose business has belonged to the America's Sugar Refining End Company since 2010. James Beckin, a PhD in chemistry, had a successful career at Pillsbury for several years and was appointed special advisor to the CEO in 1999. He proved to have great ability to see the increase in health problems. He recognized that the industry was causing the dilemma. The industry assumed that several of their products would be eaten occasionally, but the competition caused these products to become so cheap that they took front and center stage. In addition, the industry determined a bliss point that really makes consumers want to have more. Michael Mudd, who at the time was the vice president of Kraft, explained that huge numbers of young people in the United States were overweight, and that not doing anything about this problem would be a big mistake because it would come back to hurt the companies he believed. Mudd included the fact that Walter C. Willett, the chair of Harvard's Department of Nutrition, had been on a PBS frontline report called Fat and had already been pointing to industrial food production as a cause of the obesity epidemic. Among other things, he explained that most grains are converted to starches. Sugar is used in a concentrated form and many foods contain trans fatty acids. Next, Mudd presented ways to get around this problem. The industry itself should investigate the links between diet and obesity and put industry-wide limits on salt, sugar, and fat. Mudd also wanted to change the way that products were marketed to children. He then ended by saying that the industry should be part of the solution instead of the problem. Then all eyes turned to the CEO of General Mills, Stephen W. Sanger, 1946 to present, previously at Procter & Gamble, as his company was the one that had the most to lose. He particular exploits in supermarkets had impressed the others in the industry. Under his leadership, General Mills had conquered the supermarkets with convenience foods. The S-more products made by Hershey took the levels of fat, sugar, and salt to new heights. Dal Brewster, CEO of Nabesco, told Michael Moss that Hershey's move to put them in a position where they were particularly forced to add more fat in order to get to the bliss point. This was the only way that Nobesco could regain lost market share. Sugar. Based on the extensive insider knowledge, Michael Moss explains how the industry researches the proportion of salt, sugar, and fat that needs to be added to a product so that special impulses are triggered in our brain. 2.1, Exploiting the Biology of Children, page 3. The bliss point is different for each person. Depending on their age and other factors, small children require a recipe with significantly more sugar in order to reach their bliss point. The food industry computes this with cleverly devised studies. Primarily conducted at the Morrell Chemical Census Center, a non-profit independent scientific institute. Moss writes that half of Mornell's annual budget of $17.5 million comes from taxpayers. The other half comes from donations, but also from Pacific studies conducted for PepsiCo, Coca-Cola, Kraft, Nestle, Philip Morris, and other food manufacturers. Mornell financed research that would put cigarettes in a more favorable light. Moss also described tests conducted with children to determine their bliss point. These tests have allowed the industry to develop foods that children really crave. In the 1980s, the majority recognized that the increased consumption of sweet foods can over time cause tooth decay, heart diseases, diabetes, and the like. 
but authorities were no longer able to appeal to stay-at-home mums since two-thirds of the sugar consumed came from processed foods. At Mornell, Michael Tordoff determined that sugary drinks cause people to feel hungry. This happened no matter if the drinks contain artificial sweeteners or high fructose corn syrup. Mornell tried to develop a drink that would help consumers to lose weight. In 1987, all their attempts to do so failed. And if the drink contained high fructose corn syrup, the test subjects gained an average of nearly a pound and a half in three weeks. Julie Menel established that when she had children drink these type of sodas, they generally wanted more sweet things to eat or drink. 2.2. How to get people to crave. Page 25. Using the examples of John Lennon, The Beach Boys, ZZ Top and Cher, Moss shows how addictive sodas can be. Everyone wanted Dr. Pepper, which at least in England was almost impossible to find at the time. Dr. Pepper is a carbonated and caffeinated soft drink. Charles Alderton invented the drink in 1885, much earlier than Coca-Cola. Moss describes the struggle for survival between the companies Coca-Cola, PepsiCo and Dr. Pepper. During this time, the industry began using magnetic resonance imaging, MRI, for such studies. But it was only in 1977 that the full-body scanners also existed. In 1972, Professor Dr. Joseph L. Blanfrey, 1924-2008, determined the optimal amount of sugar in Moskowitz statistics and called this the bliss point. Moskowitz asked him if he wouldn't want to call it the optimum sensory liking. 2.3, Convenience with the capital C, page 45. Starting on page 45, we read that Al Colsi, actually Adolf S. Colsi, C. Nicholas Apati Award 2001, began developing products for General Foods in 1946. Colsi headed the team for three years that tried without success to create an instant pudding using only natural ingredients. The company had given the team strict instructions to use only natural ingredients. The head of marketing, Charles G. Mortium, 1900-1978, coined the term convenience foods and wanted to introduce new convenience products onto the market. And most important was to develop an instant version of Jell-O pudding. But after three years of work, the team didn't still have any good results. In the summer of 1949, national brands filed a patent for instant pudding. This was only possible with the help of chemical additives, for example, orotophosphate and phryophosphate. Immediately thereafter, Claus received a message from the management that additives were now permanent. Using these, the team was able to develop a significantly better product within a few months. The product from the competition ended up never making it to the market. Jello is made up of two-thirds sugar, about 21% potato starch, and four artificial flavors that vary depending on the flavor. For chocolate pudding, cocoa is also used. Tang, a pure laboratory product that is 100% nothing natural about it, synthetic chemical and sugar. Moss explains how the companies fought for market shares. Betty Dixon from the American Home Economics Association, AHEA, was the role model for the army of school teachers who fought against convenience foods. Dixon gave traditional cooking classes on the radio and on TV. Michael Moss describes the fight of the traditional against the modern and how the industry used the fictional character Betty Crocker, similarly 
to Betty Bossy in Switzerland to dwarf the true Betty and get the upper hand. After this, the industry infiltrated the organization and turned it into an entirely different direction. 2.4, is it cereal or candy? Page 68. Starting on page 68, Moss explains how the change from a meat-based breakfast to a sweet breakfast took place. John Harvey Kellogg, 1852-1943, to wanted to find a breakfast that wouldn't cause indigestion, also known as dyspepsia or heartburn. In the late 1880s, many Americans suffered from this condition of impaired digestion. Their breakfast consists of sausage, beefsteaks, bacon, eggs, fried ham, and oatmeal. When Kellogg was a medical student, he saw the negative effects of this type of breakfast. Started in 1894, he developed the cereal cornflakes together with his brother, Will Keith Kellogg. And then in 1897, Dr. Kellogg began to serve this for breakfast at his sanitarium. The unsweetened cornflakes replaced a type of popcorn made from wheat. In 1906, Dr. Kellogg was gone for a long period of time in which his brother, Will, began to add sugar to the cornflakes. This change to the original recipe caused a falling out between the brothers. Will Keith established his own company, which became the Kellogg Company. One of the guests at the Battle Creek Sanitarium, Charles Dub William Post, CW Post 1854-1914, started a rival health spa in 1892. Starting in 1897, he had his guest served postum, a coffee substitute, and also grape nuts. Grape nuts is a mixture of wheat and barley that is mixed with sugar and then baked. Post manufactured this cereal at his company, Postum Cereal Co., which he established in 1895. His sweet breakfast cereal was the core business of his company. But 1970, the big three, Kellogg, Post, and General Mills, controlled about 85% of the cereal market. Annual sales grew rapidly from $660 million in 1970 to $4.4 billion in the mid-1980s. In 1976, the Federal Trade Commission, FTC, brought a complaint against the big three because they weren't leaving any shelf space free for other companies and had therefore jacked up the cereal prices. In this way, the companies had earned $1.2 billion additional profit by overcharging customers since 1958. The industry's incredibly strong defense made sure that nothing ever came of this antitrust action. The commission dropped the case in 1982. 2.5, I want to see a lot of body bags. Page 95. Michael Moss points out that it is primarily the calories in sugary drinks that are the problem. Researchers have determined that people don't hardly experience a feeling of fullness after they have had calorie-rich drinks. The drinks apparently flow too quickly past the taste buds. If you look at the sales statistics for Coca-Cola and PepsiCo and compare these statistics on obesity, you will see what has happened. And many additional drinks have also been introduced onto the market. It wasn't until 1990 that Charles Furnote, the chief marketing officer for the entire group, determined with the help of Givedian why Coca-Cola is so addictive. Moss explains the considerations and points out that Coca-Cola changed from sugar to high fructose corn syrup in 1980. The advertising budget alone was $181 million in 1984. Between the years 1980 to 1997, Coca-Cola sales worldwide 
increased from 4 to 18 billion. By 1997, Americans were drinking on average 200 liters of soda a year. Consumers normally find sodas in the prime selling positions in supermarkets and corner stores, sea stores and convenience stores. The latter are often located near schools or students passed by these on the way home from school, meaning that Coca-Cola is really the cash cow for the owners. 2.6, a burst of fruity aroma. In this chapter, which reads almost like a novel, Moss describes an important meeting in 1990 where the 12 most important heads of Philip Morris, the world's largest tobacco company, came together. The World Health Organization had wanted to recommend that only 10% of a person's daily caloric intake should come from sugar, but it withdrew its proposal as a result of pressure from the food industry. In 1991, and after the success with Kool-Aid, Philip Morris purchased Capri Sun for $155 million and then soon had annual sales that amounted to $230 million. Capri Sun is a drink that is made up of fructose concentrated and fruit concentrate. On page 134, Moss lists off the differences between concentrates and real juices. At its extreme, a concentrate can be a purely chemical formula that is known in the industry as a stripped juice. Fat. There is more than sweet, which Aristotle's, see details below, named the first taste. We also have bitter, salty, harsh, astringent, and acid, which he saw as a counterbalance to sweet. Even back then, Aristotle knew that the fat or oily taste is just as important as the sweet one. Today, we also recognize unami as one of the basic tastes. This taste can be described as meaty and savory. See also sodium glutamine, also known as monosodium glutamine, E number E621, which is used as a flavor enhancer. This is often mixed with some glutasin monophosphate, E626, or inosinc acid, E630 to E33, in order to achieve the best effect. 2.7, that gooey, sticky mouthfeel. Fat doesn't least two things for convenience food. The industry uses it to achieve more volume and a firmer texture, for example, with baked goods. Based on the studies conducted by industry and research, Michael Moss discusses things that the industry has discovered in connection with fat. The newer studies use very expensive functional magnetic resonance imaging, MRI. It was ultimately shown that when substances such as sugar and fat are combined, as long as this is done well, they have the potential to be highly addictive. The sensation takes place in the same place as with heroin. Adam Drunowski, a professor for epidemiology, began his research on fat in 1982. He was familiar with the Boyce Point for Sugar and also the work done by Skorovsky Nack at General Foods and the texture of fat. He searched in vain for the Boyce Point or Break Point for fat and then determined that there was no such thing for fat. He discovered that the brain doesn't give a signal to stop eating fat. He found that test subjects liked food even better when sugar was added. Fat and sugar together increased people's cravings dramatically. 2.8 Liquid Gold Dean Southworth worked for Kraft for 38 years, where he invented many products, the most notable of which was Cheese Whiz. Motel's International called a newer version of this Easy Cheese. 
Note the term cheese analogies. Cheese alternatives is generally used for these processed cheeses. After a year and a half of development, the product came onto the market in July 1953 as one of the first convenience foods. This cheese alternative was a great spreadable cheese to use on salty and buttery crackers. People enjoyed eating crackers with a spreadable cheese on top while watching TV in the evenings. This cheese alternative contained so much salt and saturated fat that people ended up consuming more than a day's recommended maximum salt and saturated fat in one sitting. In 2001, after Southworth had retired, he was eating cheese whiz one day and knew immediately that Kraft had changed something. The list of 27 ingredients no longer included cheese. Before this, Kraft had always included some real cheese as a way to give the product legitimacy. Compared to the early 1970s, Americans now eat triple the amount of cheese and pseudo-cheese. This means that Americans are now exceeding the maximum recommended allowance of fat by more than 50%. Each year, Kraft alone sells 7 billion of cheese and cheese alternatives. Soon after Kraft was acquired by the tobacco giant Philip Morris, it introduced a line of flavoured cheese. After extensive consumer testing, the perfect formula was developed and consumers loved this cheese alternative even more. This was also because of the increased fat content, which made the cheese even more attractive. After this, macaroni and cheese was introduced, which the industry called the Blue Box. It sold for only $1.19 and was a big hit. It had annual sales of $300 million. 2.9. Lunchtime is all yours. Moss traces the history of Oscar Mayer, which as of 1883 was considered the king of quality meat. As described in the Upton Sinclair's book, The Jungle, the industry manufactured products very negligently when it came to purity, since red meat in particular came under attack because of its large proportion of saturated fats. Sales fell between 10% between 1980 and 1990, but sales of poultry increased by 50%. The industry understood that if they didn't create products that consumers craved, they would quickly lose ground to competition. Oscar Mayer altered its beef bologna, a type of bologna sausage or bratwurst cooked sausage, but also a convenience food, in order to improve the numbers. But only new products were able to help prevent a loss of sales. The book continues with the story of how more sugar was added to the Lunchables in 1991. This made it possible for Lunchables to regain its popularity, in particular when it came to children. Kraft initially tried to add carrots, apple slices, and other fresh products to the ready-to-eat lunches, but they soon realized that this wouldn't work because of the constraints of the long storage period that was required, transport, and shelf life. By the mid-1990s, pizza had become one of the most popular foods in the United States. Result, by 2009, almost 25% of adults had diabetes. In comparison, the 1990s showed that 10% of children ages 10 and above had joints that had stiffened and thicker arteries, such as those found in 45-year-olds. The worst-rated pre-packed meals contained 57 grams of sugar, 1.6 grams of salt, and an additional 9 grams of saturated fat. 2.10. The message the government conveys. This chapter describes the history of the United States Department of Agriculture, USDA, with its 111,000 employees, 
2004 laid 117. This agency is supposed to serve the about 312 million people in the United States, but it has a conflict of interest between the people and the $1 trillion food industry. Instead of protecting people from diseases, the USDA has helped to persuade consumers to consume more. The USDA report from 2010 estimates that 32 million Americans take tablets to lower their cholesterol levels. This is as little over 10% of the population. For the first time, the USDA acknowledges that people were developing type 2 diabetes so frequently and early as a result of their poor diets. They estimate that about 24 million Americans were affected and that another 79 million people had pre-diabetes. And even worse, an increasing number of children were getting type 2 diabetes, 3,600 new cases per year. Diabetes mellitus is an umbrella term. It is commonly known as diabetes. Luckily for consumers, there is also the Food and Drug Administration, FDA, which is independent of the USDA. And in 1990, the FDA was able to require companies to clearly label the ingredients and nutritional information of their products. Then at least the consumers who were trying to live mindfully and ask questions will know what the main ingredients in the products are. On page 230, he discusses convincing scientific studies that show how eating meat increases the risk of colorectal cancer significantly. Every 1.7 ounces of processed meat consumed per day increases the risk of colorectal cancer by 21%. 2.11, no sugar, no fat, no sales. In chapter 11, No Sugar, No Fat, No Sales, Michael Moss uses numerous examples to show how the tobacco and food companies take action when they come under criticism or when they discover new opportunities to design and advertise products so that they will generate increased revenue. He also includes information taken from the industry's secret papers. We learn what happens with employees who try to address and solve the problems. For example, Michael Mudd and Petsy Holden, co-CEO of Kraft. Salt. Around 1980, salt was given the nickname the silent killer as Americans were eating 10 to 20 times more sodium than the body needs. First, salt shakers were seen as the cause of the problem. However, it was only later that critics discovered that more than three-fourths of our salt consumed came from processed foods. Science had finally identified salt as a problem and recommended that the maximum amount of salt consumed per day be reduced to 2.3 grams to 1.5 grams. This also meant that the half the population was eating too much salt. Just eating one convenience food dinner brought in 5.4 grams of salt per portion. Consumers desire salt so much that the even health conscious companies use too much salt. 2.12 people love salt. Salt doesn't have any calories, but the sodium in salt is important for physiological functions. Stephen Woods, a professor at the University of Cincinnati, compared eating and drinking to taking narcotics. All three bring your body out of balance and substances end up in your blood. But the body needs the blood levels to remain constant. With popular convenience foods in particular, the organs have to work extra hard in order to get the high levels of salt, sugar and fat out of the bloodstream. The industry sees salt as a magical element. This is because, for example, cornflakes taste metallic without added salt. Crackers would be bitter and mushy and stick to the roof of your mouth. 
ham would tend to taste rubbery. In commercial bread making, a certain amount of salt is added to the fast-spinning machines to keep them from clogging. And salt is added to bread to slow down the rising time. The most important thing that salt does is to eliminate the unpleasant smell that reheated meals without salt have. In the industry, this is called the warmed over flavor, WOF. This WOF is caused by the oxidation of fat components, or lipoids, to be precise, which is similar to decomposition. This causes the meat to taste rancid, bland, or like cardboard or damp dog hair. The industry could prevent this from happening when convenience dishes are reheated by adding healthy, fresh spices such as rosemary, but these antioxidants are too expensive. The food industry requires a lot of salt in order to increase the shelf life, storage, and to bind certain ingredients that would otherwise not hold together. As example of this are the proteins and fats in cheese. The industry also sometimes adds sodium to other ingredients to achieve the bliss point. Note, examples of added sodium are trisodium citrate, E331, e.g. as an emulsifying salt, sodium phosphate, E339, and disodium phosphate, E450A. Then Moss explains how the raw material suppliers such as Car Grill understand how to grind salt so fine that the brain and body can assimilate that salt we crave even quicker. From this, additives and food additives have to be added to prevent the salt crystals from cracking. After this, we learn how the food industry reacted to the new guidelines in 2005 on reducing salt consumption. Most significantly, Cargill was able to achieve the same taste with 33% less salt by replacing salt with potassium chloride, E508. On page 294, Moss describes how the British had tried to discourage manufacturers from doing this as many studies link large amounts of potassium to kidney problems. 2.13, the same great salty taste your customers crave. Jody Mason, a technician at Cargill, gave Michael Moss a taste test so that he could experience the difference. While bread without salt tasted like tin, the bread with the new combination was delicious. The new combination is much pricier than salt, but it is serving the food industry well. However, it does taste bitter in some products and some companies are now using even more additional additives in order to mask the bitter taste. Moss describes how he tried a number of experimental products developed by the industry and was able to experience himself how the products without salt were almost inedible. He gives a wide variety of examples showing what the industry has developed in order to position themselves as well as possible in the market. 2.14, I feel so sorry for the public. Starting on page 302, Moss writes about the efforts of the Finnish government to reduce the consumption of salt. They did this by putting strict regulations in place. They took action because the larger number of people with high blood pressure and or heart attacks in the eastern part of Finland, in particular, the Finns had very high levels of salt consumption. Finland had the highest rates of cardiovascular disease in the world. Officials had long claimed that this was caused by genetic disposition. By 2007, the salt consumption in Finland had dropped by a third, and the number of deaths from strokes and heart disease had declined by 80%. 
a group of activists that was founded in 1971 and had 900,000 strong members, was at least able to force PepsiCo to change the name of its Tropicana Peach Papaya Juice. The product doesn't contain any peaches, papayas, or juice, and it no way contains fruit juice. And it also made Sara Lee change the name of its whole grain bread since it contains 30% whole grains. Moss describes various products and some of the ingredients in history. In doing so, he also quotes professors who would like to fight against the increasing obesity and related diseases. 2.15, we're hooked on inexpensive food. The last section, page 331 to 347, deals with the fact that people are often not able to afford better quality food. Fast food and junk food are by far the cheapest types of food. In 1960, Overeaters found Overeaters Anonymous in Los Angeles. It is a 12-step program that is similar to Alcoholics Anonymous. Moss describes the efforts of a group of parents who wanted to keep the school children from buying junk food. They took turns standing in front of the stores during school breaks and after school. This is reminiscent of how some parents try to prevent their children from doing drugs. It has been shown that the child's taste preferences are influenced by their mother's diet during the breastfeeding period. This is because the flavors of the food she eats are in the breast milk. After they had been weaned, a child will more readily accept foods with taste that they recognize. And that's a wrap on salt, sugar, and fat. Subscribe to our channel and take a look at the hundreds of book summaries uploaded previously. To find hundreds of written summaries, check out our website, bestbookbits.com. And for hundreds of audio podcast summaries, find us on mixcloud.com forward slash bestbookbits. If you want to connect with myself and need some guidance, advice, coaching, etc., drop me an email at coaching at bestbookbits.com. Thanks for watching and listening, and have yourself a great day. Take care.